programming note. The first person who guesses the subject of this series and sends me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com and you put the subject the uh, the subject of this series in the subject line of the, of the uh, email and you send me your address, I will send you out a Churchill mug. So good luck everyone. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 216, War, a Zero-Sum Game. The fall of France in just six weeks, in 1940, shook the body politic of Great Britain to the point that they placed the rather unpleasant Churchill in 10 Downing Street. Yet the shocks kept coming. Now London and Churchill had to do with the fallout of the French colonial possessions. Where would they fall in this new world order, not to mention the French army and navy? Losing France, which had one of, if not the, largest land armies in the world, was bad enough, but its navy was the fourth largest, and like Britain, it had far-flung colonies. London needed to know which parts of the French empire, if any, could be counted on to help continue the fight. Churchill certainly hoped that what was left of the French government would pick a colony, settle there, and continue the fight. And men like Armand Arnay, the governor-general of present-day Benin in West Africa, and Marcel de Copé, the governor-general of Madagascar, wished for this too. Alas, it was not to be. For Marshal Pétain and his supporters decided not to leave France. One exception was General Charles de Gaulle, the Undersecretary of State for War. And though Pétain has been raked over the coals by some for his decision, he had his reasons. First, if France continued to resist, Hitler would gleefully crush whatever was left. And how would that help France? A footnote in a history book of a former defiant country would be nice, but it would not help the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of dead, injured, and enslaved French people. No, better to live on whatever terms than death. Also, Pétain believed that if he gave up, then Britain would have no other option other than to work out a peace with Hitler. And if that was the case, then why should his country bleed even more, if the outcome would be the same? As anti-British feelings were still high in France, given the abysmal performance of the French and the British Expeditionary Force, or BEF, during the war in the West, Pétain got his way and got many to go along with him. Britain was now on its own. So while the details of the armistice were being worked out, the main focus of London, Paris, and Berlin became the French fleet and her colonies. Hitler did not want to refight the war in the West and knew that the resources of the French colonies were considerable, second only to Britain's colonies. Thus, he insisted that they be ordered to stand down, which is exactly what Vichy's new defense minister, General Vagan, ordered on June 25, 1940. All commanders of the French Empire were to obey the armistice. In fact, this was so important to Berlin that the first article of the armistice said all hostilities would cease in France, her French possessions, colonies, protectorates, and mandated territories. 
On the other side of this newly created chessboard, the British now worried about the French fleet. It could not be placed in Hitler's hands, for the combined French and German navies would make an invasion of the home island possible. And that would be game, set, and match. What followed was Operation Catapult, a British move to occupy French vessels, warships, and merchant ships, which had sailed into British-controlled harbors for sanctuary. The first phase of Catapult went relatively smoothly. Few lives were lost, but there were more ships to capture. For example, a French squadron in the harbor of Mers el Kabir in the city of Iran and then French Algeria was refusing to give in to British demands. But the French did promise to scuttle their ships before letting the Germans get their hands on them, which was not enough for London and the Admiralty, as this was a zero-sum game. So the British ships opened fire. When the smoke cleared, the French had suffered the following. Just under 1,300 men killed, one battleship lost, two battleships damaged, two destroyers damaged, another destroyer grounded, and lesser ships were either lost or damaged. That was on the North African coast on July 3, 1940. On the continent's west coast at Dakar in French West Africa, modern-day Senegal, in late September, during Operation Menace, the newest French battleship, Richelieu, was damaged. Churchill had been hoping for more here, that the Vichy French government there would collapse and a free French administration under General Charles de Gaulle would take its place. That would have to wait. And lastly, in Alexandria, Admiral René-Emile Godfroy had the battleship Lorraine, four cruisers, three destroyers, and a submarine. British Admiral Cunningham, his potential adversary, explained, You can go, but those ships, they have to stay here. Godfoy replied with, The ships would have their fuel bunkers emptied, their fire mechanisms removed. Cunningham countered with, Thank you, your men will be repatriated. This was agreed to, and the bloodshed was avoided. But if Churchill had believed or hoped that French anti-British feelings had dissipated, he was way off. In May, roughly a year after Mers el Kabir, the French allowed the Luftwaffe to use airfields in Syria to help locals resisting British control. But more than that, the French there serviced the German planes and sent military supplies to the rebels. That's about as cut and dry as rebellion gets. However, as one definition of genius is to turn a problem into an opportunity, London now had an excuse to occupy Syria. They were going to do it anyways to stop the Germans from getting it, from traveling through Turkey to capture Egypt, and to seize all the oil fields in the Persian Gulf. But again, now they had a reason that the U.S. could not disagree with. Think Atlantic Charter and FDR not being a fan of the British Empire. The result was, of course, war but its aftertaste left much to be desired for the Allies. Still in Syria were 32,000 French and colonial troops, who had 90 tanks, 60 aircraft, and at least 8 batteries of artillery. Still, the British and Free French went in, the conflict lasting 5 weeks. 
The Vichy lost just over 10,000 men for their defense, which would only add to their bitterness. But what pleased London was that three more French warships had been destroyed. But now that the Allies had it, who should run it? De Gaulle, in his usual over-the-top and condescending way, said Syria should be run by him, whereas Churchill needed this place locked down, now that it had been won, in combat. Supporting de Gaulle with arms was one thing. Letting him rule a vital area like Syria, that was another. But in the end, the British turned it over. It would not be the last fight between de Gaulle and Churchill, and later, FDR. One man who embodied the British-hating spirit was Admiral Jean-Louis Xavier Francois Dallon, and he became the head of the Vichy government, under General Pétain in early 1941. Darlan wanted Britain to lose, if only to show them they were not all that. But on a more practical level, Darlan suspected that Churchill wanted Dakar and Madagascar, and the, hopefully one day, revitalized French Empire would need those places. If not, they would not be an empire. Vichy's course was set. During that summer of 1941, Vichy signed a deal with the Japanese Empire to allow their armies into French Indochina. In truth, the Japanese could have just done it anyways, with Vichy powerless to stop them. But the agreement was formal. However, Vichy then put out that they allowed this to stop the Free French, or even worse, the British, from occupying French Indochina. Feelings, as one can imagine, ran deep. And of course, as we have already seen, with the Japanese able to pass through Indochina to Thailand, another Japanese ally, they would push their way to Singapore, outflanking the determined defense at the end of the Malay Peninsula. Once more, failure, like success, builds on itself. And then everyone's life got that much more complicated. When, on December 7, 1941, the Japanese attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor. Afterwards, while the Americans were looking around and starting to point fingers at each other, suddenly Vichy France had another of their territories to be concerned about, the island of Madagascar. For it lies in the western Indian Ocean, just off Africa's southeast coast, and is alongside the shipping lanes after one comes around the Cape of Good Hope and continues on to the east. And Madagascar would stay important, that is, until massive jet-powered propelled airliners could fly right over the island without thinking about it twice. During the war, Madagascar could be the beginning of military operations in any direction for quite some ways. Already those on Madagascar had seen numerous tankers, leaving with Middle Eastern oil, taking it away, and, going the other way, supplies to Russia via the Persian Gulf. Not to mention Allied or Commonwealth troops to help keep Rommel out of Egypt. And lastly, supplies, going to Australia and New Zealand, and of course those ships had to cross the Indian Ocean to get there, but only after passing by Madagascar. Demonstrating this, by the summer of 1941, some 250,000 military personnel had sailed just past the island, 
If an unfriendly were to possess it, with battleships, subs, and bombers, well, life would become most unpleasant. As we have already seen, nature has blessed some territories with bays that could comfortably house their fleets in a storm, and Madagascar was no exception. Just on the eastern side of the northern tip of Madagascar is Diego Suarez Bay, or Antsirnana Bay. What makes it safe for ships of all sizes is that the area inside is protected by a narrow inlet. It's larger than Scapa Flow and has 10 miles of quays and docks. The French had spent piles of money for just over 10 years before the war, and by 1936, it had a dry dock that could hold a 28,000-ton battleship. After mainland France, it was the Empire's best port. And circling back to the fall of 1941, Churchill, who could read a map as well as anyone, knew that if the Japanese decided to push this war west and take the island, they could paralyze British communications with its eastern empire. This could not be allowed to happen. Churchill messaged all of this to FDR, hoping the Americans could do something. But with the losses at Pearl, that was a non-starter. In fact, just six days after Pearl was attacked, the chiefs of staff told the British cabinet that if Japan comes into the war, then they would probably ask or demand from the Vichy government access to the island and its harbor. On the other hand, they may just take it. Adding on to this headache, German U-boats had already been in the southern Indian Ocean, sinking cargo ships on their way east. With this information from the Chiefs of Staff, Churchill considered asking Vichy to let the British control the island's ports, but this would be officially asked from both the Americans and the British. However, it's very unlikely that this would have been approved. But as it is their job, the Chiefs of Staff had been mulling over a military takeover of the naval base since December 1940. This is done all the time, but then cooler heads prevailed as word was sent to Churchill, which read, well, is the enemy using the port facilities there now? No. Well, let's wait and see if that changes. And Churchill agreed. On the other hand, the chiefs had to acknowledge that the Japanese had used Diego Suarez Bay during the Great War. But by November 1941, with tension between the Japanese and Western powers running high, the Chiefs of Staff asked the Joint Planning Staff, or JPS, to re-examine the original 1940 report and make suggestions how the operation could be carried out the quickest and determine the best method. In the end, the JPS advocated a move the Japanese would carry out themselves in capturing Singapore. They suggested that a large infantry force land on the coast, but outside the harbor, and take the naval facilities from the landward side. Suddenly, all those large guns facing out over the water would be useless. The next step was to determine exactly what would be needed in terms of men and equipment, not to mention warships. About three weeks later, Operation Bonus, as it was being called, would need two infantry brigade groups with appropriate artillery, several warships for obvious reasons, but one of them had to be a battleship. But more importantly, given that it was an island, a large one at that, 
the fourth largest in the world, the planners also called for two carriers to project air power far and wide in all directions. And then Pearl Harbor was attacked. This was no longer a potential threat. The Japanese were now in the war, and the British Empire was stretched thin. Madagascar just got moved to the top of the list. On December 18, 1941, the Chiefs of Staff formally recommended that the force commanders be appointed and preparations should get underway forthwith. The Chiefs of Staff ended their finding with the following. If the Japanese were to get use of the naval base in Madagascar, it would be very difficult for us to continue convoys to the Middle East and India. Therefore, it is advisable to make all preparations to carry out Operation Bonus as soon as possible. But the political side of Bonus got murky very quickly. On December 10th, just three days after Pearl had been attacked, General de Gaulle advised General Alan Brooke, Chief of the Imperial General Staff, that it would be a good idea for free French forces to take Madagascar. He added, those in power on the island were anti-Vichy. De Gaulle then sent a letter to Churchill about a joint Anglo-French invasion of Madagascar. Perhaps the French general was thinking that by telling one Brit one thing and then Churchill another, that one of them would say yes, and yet. Churchill nor the chiefs of staff wanted a joint operation with the Free French. In fact, they did not want de Gaulle's people involved at all. Why? Well, there was the Dakar kerfuffle. Syria had taken too long to be subdued. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, the authorities on the island had backed Pétain and arrested everyone else who supported de Gaulle. In other words, whoever invaded the Bay Area would have to go in shooting and shoot back. But as much as Churchill did not trust de Gaulle or think very much of his men's fighting prowess, both de Gaulle and Pétain did not trust the British to ever leave Madagascar if they ever had it in their possession. And ironically, even Hitler and Pétain were in their own sticky situations. Hitler was keen not to do anything to drive the French colonies into Allied arms. He did not need the headache. Whereas Pétain knew that one day in the future, the French Empire may only consist of its colonies, as the Germans could any day take the mainland. And human nature suggests that that was only a matter of time. Hence, Vichy needed their colonies to remain. London needed Madagascar to keep it out of the hands of the Japanese, Germans, and Italians. But then there was the unknown, namely Madagascar itself. What were the conditions on the island that the British troops would have to face? After all, the island long ago had been valued by both the British and the French. But when the Suez Canal opened in 1873, London's focus changed to Egypt and the Nile which left France alone to occupy the port city. But even here, things did not go well for the French, as the locals were known to be fierce and knew the terrain, always an underappreciated advantage. Next time, as Operation Bonus morphs into reality, we'll zoom in on Madagascar and glimpse what the British were about to get themselves involved.